Well, good morning. Good morning. There's a few of you are awake. Good. It's so glad to be here today. I love when I get to come to Noonan and see all of you. I want to welcome you if you are online with us today and especially give a warm welcome to my LaGrange campus. I really miss you guys. You know, it's been a great week in LaGrange this week. We hosted our Beautifully Rooted Women's event. Now, many of you uh, ladies from Noonan came down and to be part of that event, and it was just a great night that we had together. And I am so excited about what God is doing at Southcrest. It is an amazing time to be here. But before we get started this morning, I want to take a few moments to honor our veterans. Uh, during this sermon series, Yes and Amen, we've been talking about the promises of God, the truths that God has established for us. Uh, but when we started our country, we started our country with that very language. We said we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in an effort to maintain those truths, many men and women have fought for those freedoms. G.K. Chesterton said this, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of readiness to die. So today we want to honor our veterans, if the men and women who have fought for our freedom. At both campuses, if you are a veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces, would you please stand for us? All across the room. Will you help me thank these men? Yes. Thank you so much for what you've done. But as Caleb mentioned earlier, today we're concluding our sermon series, Yes and Amen. And in this series, we have looked at the promises of God. Now, there are over 8,000 promises of God, and we definitely haven't covered all of them, but we wanted to share a few of them with you to impact your lives today. We've looked at God's promises to complete the work that he started in us, that his waiting has purpose for our lives that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that he will always provide for us. But today I want to share with you about God's promises for your family. Now, it doesn't matter what stage of life you are in today, this message will apply to you. See, all of us are part of a family, and these promises will have a profound impact on your future. Now, families are fun, aren't they? I mean, they can be our greatest source of joy, and they can also be our greatest source of frustration. Every family has that one oddball. And, and many of you, when I said that, have already thought of who that person was in your family. And can I say this? If you can't think of who that person is in your family, there's a pretty good chance it's you. I'm just going to throw that out there. But uh, my family is no exception to that rule. And, and this Thanksgiving, I'm actually going to get to spend that with my family. Uh, my mom and dad... Uh, all of my brothers and my sister and all of their spouses, throw in nine nieces and nephews, plus my four. And then on top of that, we have a few aunts and uncles coming, a couple of cousins. What could go wrong? <laughs> there are so many great traditions with Thanksgiving, uh, passed down from generation to generation. I'm sure many of you have those in your families as well. But when Angie and I started dating, traditions collided. Now, as a pastor... I can't be afraid to address truly life-changing controversies. And as I continue this story, many of you will become emotionally involved in what I'm about to share, 
but I must proceed. I, I feel that's God's, uh, my responsibility. The traditions that still have ramifications to this day, stuffing versus dressing. Yeah, see, I told you it would affect you. I, I told you it, you'd be there. See, dressing, that cornbread and the celery and the onions, and it's rectangular in shape, and it's usually one solid mass. Yeah, how many of you, by a show of a round of applause, are, are team, dress, team dressing? All right. Okay. On the other side, there's, there's stuffing. It's crumbled bread, celery, and onions mixed with turkey broth, usually all kind of all crumbly and loose. Anybody here team stuffing? There, there we go. There we go. Uh, I can see I'm in the minority, but there's still a few people here. I'm, I'm good. Whew. Um, I was raised with stuffing, and Angie was raised with dressing. And even though we've both tried to compromise, I can't handle stu- dressing, and she can't stand stuffing. Uh, so we alternate spending Thanksgiving with our families. And so every year, one of us is not happy. Um, if we're with her family, they have dressing, and I pass. And like I said, this year, when we were with my family, so we're having stuffy, and Angie is more than happy to graciously give me her share. Um, but don't we wish that all the problems in our families were as intense as stuffing versus dressing? But in reality, we have much bigger problems, like Georgia fans. <clears throat> Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) So let me share a story with you of a man who has some really big problems. James Ryle is the president and founder of TruthWorks, which is a teaching and resourcing ministry helping people experience God's presence. He has been involved in public speaking since 1972, older than most of you in this room, serving as pastor of two churches, chaplain for the University of Colorado football team, and ministering as an evangelist, Bible teacher, and popular conference speaker across the nation and abroad. James is also one of the founding board members of Promise Keepers. Now that you know who he is, let me tell you the story of who he is. At the age of two, James' dad was imprisoned for armed robbery. His mother divorced him and then ended up marrying another man who ended up being an abusive alcoholic. At the age of six, for his safety, James was placed in an orphanage that was overcrowded, and that's where he spent the remainder of his childhood. When he was a teenager, he he ran away from the orphanage and got in with a group of people and started making a lot of bad choices. Among those were just being rebellious to authority and also drugs. These choices led him to a car accident where he was driving and fell asleep at the wheel because he was high, crashed into a bridge, and his passenger, who was his friend, died in that car accident. James was charged with negligent homicide. Turning back to his friends who were hippies, they gave him some really good advice and said, hey, you need to pay for a lawyer, so sell drugs and use that money to get a lawyer. Uh, James was arrested on felony charges for selling possession of marijuana and was facing 50 years in prison. It was in this moment when a Bible verse back from his orphanage days came back to him, and it was Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So James said this was a turning point in his life. He realized God had a plan for him and that he would not enter prison alone. God immediately began to work in his life. And within just a few weeks, James was, was assigned a lawyer. The lawyer worked with the judge 
And they told him, if you won't go to court, waste taxpayer money, you'll just plead guilty, we'll give you two years. Now that's a big difference from 50. He readily took that, but God didn't stop there. And James continued to pursue Jesus and continued to pursue a relationship. And in one year, he was paroled. Now, James knew that he needed to have healing in his life and reconciliation, so he went and found his dad. And they made some phone calls, and finally they agreed to meet each other. And James had one burning question to ask his dad. Which prison were you in? He was weirdly hoping that would be the same prison as him, so he could do that whole like father-like son story. But when he asked his dad, his dad mentioned a different prison, and he was kind of distraught, kind of bummed. But then James' father asked him a question. It said, son, what prison were you in? And James replied, I was in Ferguson. And James said his dad's expression just paled. And he looked at his son and he said, son, I built that prison. You see, when I was incarcerated, they took work crews from the prison and I was a welder. And so I actually welded the bars of the cells. Let that sink in for a moment. Son, I built your prison. You see, God created the family for a purpose. The family was God's original plan to teach and instruct future generations about who he is. Throughout the ages, God's plan and desire has always been for parents to raise up their children to know and love him and to walk in his ways. We see this in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, when God created the family, he created it to be sinless and everlasting. It was a model of his relationship he intended for us to have with him. If you remember Adam and Eve in the garden, God would walk with them and he would talk with them. But he wanted us to love him. And so by doing that, he gave us free will. And with the ability to choose good, there is also the opportunity to choose evil. And we chose sin. Sin that separated us from God. Sin that brought a curse. So God gave us 10 commandments, 10 laws that if we followed him would help us to be in a right relationship with him. But as he gave us this law, he also gave us a couple warnings in there. In the second commandment that says, you shall worship no other gods, he says this, Exodus 20, looking at verse 5, you shall not bow down to, to them or to serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, this is pretty intense. He will punish the children for the sins of their parents. Our sin affects our children and our grandchildren. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly. Our sin is not transferred to our children. The Bible is very clear about that. If, if I sin, my son is not guilty of my sin. However, our lives that we lead influence our children. And so many times, like father, like son. You see, this sin pattern transfers from generation to generation. Sin is a big deal. 
Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, okay, that Bible verse says that he'll punish the generations of those who hate him, and we're at church, so obviously we don't hate him. Can we get really serious for a moment? I just want to get real serious with you just for a moment. When we aren't following Christ, we are rebelling against him. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, there is no middle ground. There is no just existing. C.S. Lewis said this, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all of your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is a joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. We are always progressing either toward God or we're turning our backs on him. There is no middle ground. We even see this in Paul, Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. He's writing to the church there, and he uses some very firm language here. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Generational sin follows this law of reaping and sowing. We see all throughout Scripture. So this then is what this generational sin, this generational curse is all about. Your family tree stretches way back, farther than we actually imagine. So the skeletons that are in our closet aren't there by our dad, our grandmother, or even our great aunt. Those skeletons are actually there from our first parents. See, you were there with Adam when he broke that command. You were condemned with him. And so our actions have a consequence. Good actions that honor God have good consequences, and sin has negative consequences. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this in the nation of Israel. God's chosen people, they turn their back on him time and time again. And he sends countless prophets to go to them and say, hey, turn back to me and I will heal you. Turn back to me, come back to me. But they refuse. You see, they would rather worship what they want than to worship God. And so the prophet Hosea says this, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Now that expression, reaping the whirlwind, is not a pleasant one. It's not one that you tell your children, hey, you're gonna reap the whirlwind, have a good day. You know, that's not a good expression. But so, what are some of the whirlwinds that our families experience because of this curse? The first is this, 80% of children from divorce will get divorced. Children of alcoholics are four times more likely than children of non-alcoholics to, to fall into alcoholism. 50% of inmates are second generation inmates. 
So I'm sure most of you are looking at me and going, great, this is a very uplifting sermon today. Thank you. What does this have to do with my family? Well, in the Bible, we see curses and we see promises and blessings. Both of these are promises. One is a result of God's goodness. The other as a result of our sin. The great part about his promises is that his grace, God's grace is so much greater. You can break the cycle of curses. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice victory is not something we accomplish alone. Through God, we can break the cycle of generational sin. His grace empowers us to cast away the chains that bind us. We are no longer bound by sin, but we often allow ourselves to wallow in it. Breaking out of generational sin is simply a matter of realizing that it has no authority over you and recognizing that God has authority over you and God wants so much more for you. The prophet Jeremiah says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Remember those statistics I gave you a few moments ago that were so warm and fuzzy? I have another one for you. 70% of genuine Christians' parents were Christians. You see, how we live our lives impacts our children greatly. Once again, the principle of reaping and sowing applies here. Just as we can sow bad seed and have those negative consequences from sin, we can also sow good seed to our children and reap the blessings of God. If we look at Galatians 6 again, I want to read the rest of what verse 8 had to say. Remember, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows unto his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When we plant seed of righteousness in our children, they will reap the harvest. And God wants good for us. We saw that in Jeremiah, he wants good things for us. And not just a little bit, not just a a third or fourth generation type thing. In Exodus, the passage we read a few moments ago, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, got to love that word in scripture sometimes, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. His love is shown to thousands of generations of those who love him. As parents, we need to love and keep his commandments. We need to not only speak words of truth, We must live lives of truth. Most of what our children has learned is from what is caught and not taught. Now, all of us know this, especially when our children are around the age of two. I'm sure every parent in here has had that wonderful trip to Walmart or the grocery store where your two-year-old child has blurted something out to someone or at someone. Now, I guarantee you, more often than not, we did not teach them to say that. It's just they're repeating something they've heard us say. And we are very embarrassed usually when that happens. Now, I want to take a break from parents. I've been kind of talking about this whole parent thing. I'm going to take a break. I want to address the children in the room. Um, But by the way, all of you are children because all of you have parents. So I guess I'm really not giving you a break. I'm just changing the, the focus just for a moment. 
Exodus 20, verse 12 says this, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother. Now that word honor is one we struggle with in this verse. We may convince ourselves that we do a pretty good job at obeying our parents. And because of this, we didn't get into really big trouble that we must be honoring our parents. Now, some of you in this room might be thinking, well, that wasn't me because I actually got into a lot of big trouble as a kid and I dishonored my parents. And I'm actually carrying around a lot of guilt and shame because of that. But as I read through this word, verse, I don't see the word obey. It says honor. Now, honor comes from a Hebrew word, kabod, which means to be heavy or to give weight. It involves taking someone very seriously and offering profound respect and a place of importance. You see, honor is more than an action. It's an attitude that we carry. It's about how we live our lives and not so much about just what we do. Honor is about living a life of integrity and godly character. Now, obedience is an important part of how we honor our parents. Don't get me wrong. It's a huge part of that. But if your parents aren't Christian and they want you to do something or go believe something that's against what God teaches and you disobey your parents, you are honoring God. And in the long run, you're still honoring your parents because you are doing what is best in that situation. Now, some of you may find this hard to believe in here, but when I was growing up, I disobeyed my parents a time or two, maybe a few times more. My older brother and I went to the same school. And as you, if any of you have ever gone to the same school with your siblings, you know this to be true. Oftentimes when I started a new school year, I would have a teacher that he had previously had before me. Now, I don't have the luxury of having a last name like Jones or Smith. My last name is Shoger, so there's no hiding behind who I am in relation to him. We are brothers. And so many times when I walk into a classroom, they already had an idea of who I was and how I was going to behave based on my brother. And so I had the opportunity to either confirm or con contrast their predisposition. But something that I realized later in my life is that the way my brother and I behaved also told those teachers something about my parents. And it also gave an insight for them to who my parents were. You see, my actions then either honored or dishonored my parents. My prayer is that we honor them and continue to do so. But I can think of a time when I didn't necessarily honor my parents all that well. It was my senior year of college, and my parents had just traveled 10 hours to come watch me play soccer and to meet then for the first time my girlfriend, who was an amazing, awesome woman, Angie. Now, I've always been cool-headed, and as a soccer player, I'm always the guy who never lets the game affect me, never lets other players affect me. I was actually the guy on the team who would keep other people from getting into fights and keep them calm. And that's just who I was when I played soccer. Um, but this day was different for some reason. I don't know if it's because they were there. I don't know. It was just different. Now, early in the game, I went down to slide tackle a, a opposing player. And as I was down in the slide, he decided he would slide against me, cleats up. And so he ended up just cleating me. Well, he got a yellow card, which in soccer is a caution that if you do that again, you're in big trouble. So he got a yellow card and I continued to play the rest of the game, but the rest of the game, this guy just wouldn't let it rest. He, he was kicking me, pushing me, punching me, talking trash to me, just constantly on me. So I remember it was in the second half and I had just gone, gotten the ball from the goalie and I was dribbling up the field and got around him and he yanked on my jersey like pulled me back into my jersey and I snapped. 
I reached around, grabbed him, and threw him to the ground. He immediately bounces back up, and we're now face-to-face. I mean, we're looking at, uh. And in that moment, I glance up, and guess who's sitting right here in the sands? My mom, my dad, and Angie. Smooth. It was real smooth. In that moment, my parents' honor was tarnished. Well, at least my mom's was. I think my dad rather enjoyed it, to be honest with you. Um, But, you know, it was not the best moment in my life. You see, God calls every child of every age to show honor to our parents, and, and more importantly sometimes, to refuse to dishonor our parents. You see, he calls us to honor them as an outflow of honoring him as our heavenly father. We're to practice honoring God by how we honor our parents. He calls us to be people who respect his sovereignty by respecting the parents he saw fit to give us. On August 8th, 1942, the USS Astoria engaged the Japanese during the battle for Savo Island. The Astoria scored several direct hits on a Japanese vessel, but was itself badly damaged. At 0200, a young Midwesterner signalman third class, Elgin Staples, was swept overboard by an explosion. Wounded in both legs by shrapnel, he found himself in the water, was able to keep afloat by a small life belt he had managed to deploy. At 0600, four hours later, he was picked up by a passing ship and was returned to the Astoria, whose captain was trying to, to beach the ship in an effort for it not to sink. Well, that failed, and shortly after, he found himself back in the water with that same life belt hanging on for dear life. He was picked up around noon that day by the USS Andrew Jackson and was transported to safety. On board that transport, Staples clung to that life belt with gratitude that had saved his life, not just once, but twice in the same day. And as he held that life belt, he began to study that piece of equipment for the first time. He looked it over in his hands, and and as he was doing this, he noticed several markings on that life belt. One says it had been manufactured by the Firestone Tire Company of Akron, Ohio, and it bore a registration number. Once he got back to safety, he was sent home on home leave. When he got home, he asked his mother, who happened to work for Firestone at the time, what the purpose of the number on the belt meant. Well, his mother explained to him that Firestone wanted to take people take a personal effort to the war effort, that they wanted them to have that responsibility piece. And so they assigned each inspector identification number that they would have fixed everything they inspected to send to the troops to make sure it was the best it could possibly be. Elgin, who had studied that number over and over for hours, simply told his mother what that number was. Then a moment of silence fell over the house. And his mother looked at him and said, that was my personal code that I affixed to everything I was responsible for approving. You see, all of us will leave a legacy. All of us will do something. It will be a curse upon our children, like the story I told you before. It will be a prison that we build for them. Or it'll be a blessing. It will be a life belt that they will cherish forever to save them 
But you see, our Heavenly Father was the first to model this. John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, he didn't come to accuse us. He didn't come to extend the curse that sin had brought upon us. Our father in heaven is a good father. He's not too busy for you. He's not a deadbeat, absentee, disinterested dad. When we talk to him, we know that he hears us. When we pray and ask, we know that he listens to us. And better yet, he always knows what is best for us. You see, he provides our needs and shapes us and disciplines us like a good father would his children. It makes him happy to do so because he delights in us. He actually wants us so much that he came and sent his only son to save us. That if we would believe in him, we would have eternal blessings and be able to break the cycle of generational sin. That we could start a new cycle, a cycle of blessings, a cycle of life. So maybe today, maybe you need Jesus to step in and stop the hurt and pain of generational sin in your life. And maybe today, maybe you need to have a relationship with him. But whatever it is, let's pray.